So this evening is the Magga Puja, one of the important observance days in the Theravada Buddhism. And I'll, I'll read you about the, read to you from the, so you'll know what, what it's all about. Let's see, the Magga Puja Day is the annual celebration of the Buddhists held on the full moon day of the third lunar month, February, in the Buddhist countries. In Thailand, the ceremony of Magga Puja is performed to emphasize the significance of the Magga month. It was the period in which the Buddha constituted the main code of his instructions and which is universally regarded as the heart of Buddhist teaching. The historical events preceding this period must be reviewed briefly. The Buddha delivered his first discourse to the five ascetics, namely Anya Kundanya, Vapa, Bhadya, Mahanama, and Asaji, who when they heard the enlightened one were ordained becoming the five noble disciples. The Buddha then made a retreat at Isipatana in the deer park near Benares, and there he ordained Yasa, the son of an influential family who had approached the Buddha and had received instructions on the discourse concerning the fivefold principles, namely generosity, morality, happy life, renunciation, and benefit of ordination. He took as his refuge the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Thus he entered into the monastic life. The order now increased to 60 in number. The Buddha urged the monks to journey in different directions and places to disseminate the law of the truth. Hence the first Buddhist mission began. The teaching of the awakened one was since spread to many people in many lands. The Buddha himself went to search at Rajagaha, went to preach at Rajagaha, the capital of Magadha state, and there three ascetics regarded as great teachers became Buddhist monks together with their disciples, and the reported number became 1,000. Vibhisara, the king of that state, became a Buddhist, taking the Triple Gem as his spiritual guide and supporting the Buddha. Uh, Buddha's mission. The king gave as a residence for the Buddha and his order a quiet and suitable place called the Veluvana Vihara, the bamboo grove, and this was the first Buddhist temple. Here many thousands of the citizens became Buddhists, and during the period when the Buddha was staying in Veluvana Vihara, a certain incident took place on the full moon day of the third lunar month. The bhikkhus 
about 1,250 in number who had been ordained by the Buddha himself and since then engaged in missionary activities returned without prior notice to the great teacher to question his, him further about his teaching. Thus took place the great assembly of all the holy ones in Welluwana Vihara where Buddha delivered the discourse on the main code of his teaching, which can be summarized thus, and which is the Ovada Patimoka. Patience, that is to say, forbearance is considered the supreme endeavor. All the Buddhists speak of Nibbana as the highest goal. A bhikkhu who still does harm and violence to others is not a recluse at all. Do no evil, do whatever is good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Non-abuse, harmlessness, restraint through the disciplinary code. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So that's called the Uwada Patimoka. So this, this is a uh, this is tradition. Theravada Buddhism through the Pali Canon then has been carried on from the time of the Buddha to the present moment here and now due to this to a tradition that uh, has managed to survive through 2550 years so we're benefiting from this at this moment uh, because uh, the teaching of the Buddha is still pertinent still uh, something that applies to the needs, problems, conditions of the present age. And so like forbearance or patience, this is, uh, if we don't have that, if we're not willing, if we, the, the problems that most of us have had in, in meditation, in monastic life, have been through, through wanting something we don't have, uh, wanting to get rid of something we have that we don't want. And then there's a desire for sensory pleasure or sensory delight. So this is, uh, just notice, and this is very clearly stated in the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth about the three kinds of desire. So contemplating this over the years, this will be my 42nd Vasa this year as a bhikkhu and 43 if you count my first year as Samanera. So that's a long period of time to forbear and to investigate these kind of desires. Three desires. Gamadana, Bhavadana, Vipavadana. So now this is a the insight through this investigation is to let go of desire. When you see the suffering is caused through attachment to desire, then you have the insight to let go of desire, which is not an annihilation or a destruction. It's merely a simple act of relinquishing, letting go, relaxing, putting down something that is causing me pain or suffering of some sort. So in my own experience with suffering over 
42 years. This is, you know, just to, one can understand this, have insights in various stages of, uh, but then, of course, one's, uh, as one lives one, one's life, as you go on, then you, you, have, you, you have to deal with your karma, with what happens. And that uh, in the present moment. And so, always using this, this um, Four Noble Truths teaching for this reflection. If, if I'm suffering, what am I attached to? What is what kind of desire am I attached to that makes me suffer or unhappy or discontented or dissatisfied? And so then asking myself that question, what is it that makes me discontented or angry or upset or, or uh, restless or whatever? And then by investigating the attachment, wanting something, maybe wanting something I don't have, or not wanting things to be the way they are. Now many of us, you know, are from uh, Western cultural conditioning, so we have, we tend to operate from ideals, from ideas and opinions. And so, just notice what it is to be attached to an ideal of how things should be. And then, then of course, the realities of the present, cannot, we can only be discontented. Because um, life is not an ideal. Life is uh, breathing, it's feeling, it's sitting, standing, walking, lying down, it's pleasure, pain. It's success and failure, it's happiness and suffering. Old age, sickness, death, loss of the loved, having to be with the unloved, and all this is a reflection. This is, this is what life is like in this sense realm that we're experiencing. It's not an ideal realm, but it is like this. And so the Buddha is pointing to the way it is, and that's called the way it is, is the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is. And then the, the Buddha simplified everything by saying that all conditions are impermanent. Now that, that means all conditioned phenomena, all phenomena, no matter subtle or gross, uh, physical or mental, nama or rupa, it is impermanent. And that's not something to grasp as an ideal. And not, this, the, the thing that appealed to me about Buddha Dhamma was the fact it wasn't asking you to believe in things. And it makes no demand on the level of grasping some basic concept. It's an encouragement to look and investigate reality or the here and now. So you have these conventions of five khandas, six ayatanas, nama rupa, all these are really, they're simplifications. When you get into Abhidhamma it becomes more complicated. Or you get into just the complexities of uh, an ignorant human mind. It's, it's like a sticky web of comp complicated views and contradictions and opinions and fears and desires. And that's why there's so much stress in the society. 
because life is, modern life is uh, becoming increasingly complicated. We tend to complicate everything. Everything is, is a million times more than what it is. And so, this is, uh, this is uh, what worldly dhammas do. They tend to, uh, you know, just blind us with our own desires and fears and opinions and views. So then in uh, Vipassana meditation, instead of, you're not trying to run away from any of this, but put it in perspective. All conditions are impermanent. Well, that simplifies a lot. Because whether it's a, a refined or coarse, good or bad, right or wrong, condition phenomena, whether it's gross or subtle, it has this one characteristic that is common to all conditions is impermanent or nietzsche. Well, if you really appreciate that, if you really, you know, pursue that, investigate, not, not believe it and go around quoting the scripture, but actually putting it into, you know, it's just seeing your own uh, feeling or thought or emotion. Uh, whether it's gross or subtle, good or bad, right or wrong, it's like it's, you're that which is aware of impermanence. Now then we're getting to the, to the, the source. Awareness of impermanence. Can a condition, impermanent condition, be aware of itself? Can impermanence be aware of impermanence? Ask itself. So what is it that can be aware of impermanence? What is it that's aware of impermanence? That's aware of a feeling of happiness or sadness, contentment or discontentment. So that is why mindfulness is the, is the only possibility that any of us have for liberation. It's through through recognizing, valuing this reality of awareness in which we see the conditioned realm for what it really is, the truth of the way it is. And of course in Buddhist terms it's the Nietzsche Dukkanata. The very nature of conditioned phenomena is Dukkha. It's unsatisfactory meaning that what arises ceases. When you want something that arises not to cease, then you create suffering. If you're just aware of what arises and ceases and you allow things to be what they are, then you don't suffer. You don't create suffering. So that which is aware of suffering, aware of conditioned phenomena, is the unconditioned. So then there's ati bhikkhuwe ajatang aputang akatang sankadang no jaitang bhikkhuwe abhuvisa ajatang aputang akatang sankadang na yaitang jadasa putasa kadasa sankadasa nisaranang panya yaita. So that's that's the perfect perspective. Now you're probably wondering what that is. <laughs> In the Udana, this is in the Pali Canon, the, uh, 
there is the unborn ajatang, ati. Ati means there is bhikkhus, the unborn ajatang. Aputang, uncreated. Akatang, asankadang, unformed, unconditioned. Now that's a statement of fact. That's not a metaphysical theory. Now just, you know, just contemplate. This is a, the Buddha stating a fact. He's not speculating. It's not metaphysical speculation about the ultimate meaning of life or the, the nature of things according to the thinking process of a human being. It's pointing to, to reality. And it's stated as a fact, isn't it? There is the unborn. So that is, uh, therefore there is escape from the born. So the body's born. The uh, five khandas, they're all about what is born. Uh, six ayatanas, the uh, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, the sensory world, sensory consciousness, uh, the emotional habits, the thought process, all that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel, the whole, all sankharas are impermanent. Those are, that's the born, the, the created, the formed and the conditioned. There is an escape from the born, the now, ignorance of Icha means we, we are totally identified with the born, the created, the form, the condition. And that's what Sangsara is. Uh, a total alignment with the condition. Identity bound and limited into the conditioned. So then what do we do? We, that's why there's suffering, why we suffer. Uh, why... The world is the way it is. Why is there such unhappiness in a country like this, which has everything? Why can't just having lots of money and, and uh, comfort and success, why are we still unhappy and discontented? What is it about the human condition that we can't be content, that we're restless, and egotistical, conceited, full of ourselves. And you, you know, you, you contemplate this, the, the conceit of being human. And you have Sakya Ditti. This is a Pali word for like the ego or the sense of a separate self. What I think, what I feel, me and mine. My identity with the body, my identity with my feelings and thoughts, opinions and views, memories. All this is Sakya Ditti. And yet I can bind myself to Sakya Ditti. And when I bind myself to my Sakya Ditti, I become like that. I become that kind of person when I, when I blindly attach to Sakya Ditti. So then I'm a helpless victim of my conditioning. Because my sakyaditi is such that uh, when people praise me, I'm happy. When people criticize me, I'm angry. 
When I'm successful, I feel better than when I feel like a failure. I, I want to be recognized and appreciated, and I don't like being looked down on and despised. And I want to be happy, and I don't want to be miserable. So Sakyaditi <laughs> is, is that. It's always wanting and, and ex, you know, complaining, grumbling, blaming, uh, whinging, um, and all like that. So we do that, you know, we, we live in this realm of our own misery that we create. So, so then when you see that, investigate that. I'm not going to do that anymore. There's no point in perpetuating ignorance and suffering if you see how not to do it. So this you have the insight, insight into the way it is. Now there's the unborn, uncreated, as I said, that's a statement of fact. At first, when you think about it, you don't quite get it because it's a thought. So you think, what, is, what do you mean by the unborn, uncreated? And then you want to think about, you want me to tell you, you know, that it's this or that, or it, well, it, you know, some people say, well, it just, you know, it's the absence of the conditioned, of course, unconditioned, or so we make truisms or, or speculations about the, what is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. But carrying it beyond the, the thinking process, because those are just words, unborn, uncreated, just words like any other word. But it's, there is the unborn, uncreated. What is it now? What, what is it at this very moment? Now this is like self-inquiry. Well, if I try to think about it, I just get my mind in a tangle. You know, you give up because you can't imagine it. it it's beyond imagination because it has no form. It's the unformed. Imagine, images are always forms. Unformed. And so the unformed, when I stop thinking, it's this, this unformed. There's consciousness, there's awareness, there's wisdom. You can recognize the unform, unborn is this. This is reality. And this reality, then, it gives you perspective on the condition, the unborn, on the, on the born, the created, the conditioned, and the formed. So that's why many of you don't get anywhere in your meditation because you're always operating from the f conditioned, always operating, meditating, thinking, believing in the conditioned realm, and, uh, and then trying to, to work always from the conditioned realm without seeing, without insight into the ultimate reality, the unconditioned. And recognizing, realizing the unconditioned is a matter of just being aware in the present. 
if there's no form to it, I can't point it out as an object and say it's this or that, but I certainly recognize it. It's real, it's not some kind of subtle uh, form of concentrated practice that I've developed over 42 years. It's as obvious as space. But it's because we're so bound to the thinking process, to trying to figure everything out and know all about everything. Know all about Dhamma through what this teacher says, what the Pali Canon says, what the Mahayana scriptures say, what, uh, you know, on and on like this, into about what the dictionaries say and compare what the Christians believe with what the Buddhists do. You know, there's an endless kind of conversation going on about religion. But uh, in the Buddha is pointing to the here and now, it's here and now, mindfulness, there is the unborn, this is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Now when I do that, I've been doing this for years, so I, the mind starts to want to think about it or will start thinking or wandering in thought. So that's why I'm pointing this out, that the, the, during this retreat, just this, uh, for this following week, to keep, uh, you know, to, there's nothing to do in this retreat. Don't try to get samadhi or peace or calm or anything. Don't try to get anything. Give up trying. Just trusting and being aware, awake, is like this. And we can look at retreats and now we've got to really strive and get, get our samadhi. We're, we're full of this idea of getting samadhi and getting our samadhi. So this is, uh, this is another delusion we hold because if I, Aljan Samedo, want to get something that I call samadhi, it's ignorance compounded, isn't it? Me, as this person, don't have the samadhi that I think I should, wanting to get something I don't have, wanting everybody to be quiet so I can get my samadhi, that this samadhi that I want depends on everybody shutting up and the whole world shutting down so that the problem arises when they're putting in the radiators in the entrances, we've got to get rid of the workmen because they've created too much noise. So we've got to shut everything down so I can have my samadhi. Now what is that? That's ignorance and self-view. And where are you going to get anywhere with that as your modus operandi? How can you expect to ever see reality through ignorance? It's impossible, isn't it? So the Buddha is saying, start out with enlightenment, is what he's actually saying. Start out with mindfulness. It's this, it's awareness. Don't start out from me trying to get something, but being aware of that. If, I'm, if I feel I've got to get something, I can observe that feeling of I want to practice in order to attain.
I can be aware of that. Or now you're probably going to go, Ajahn Sumedho said, don't even try, don't practice, and then you're going to cling to that as a view. Well, cling to it, but observe it. Observe the viewpoint that you're clinging to, whether you've got to get something you don't have or you shouldn't do what you're doing. Whatever it is about me and mine in getting and attaining or controlling and achieving, the awareness is this is the unborn, uncreated, aware of the born and the created. So it's, uh, that's why it's called a direct ujupatipano, uh, direct practice. It's not about uh, stages of attaining, you know, you've got to develop this and then get that and then get the next thing. Because we tend to cling to that view of I'm at this level and I've got to attain the next level. So it's really an invitation to wake up, puto, wake up, observe. Pay attention to life. Now I've found over the years of this kind of practice, even though I I understood it the first year well enough, I had the insight the first year when I was Samanero. But over the years, in my monastic life, I've used this monastic form for this awareness because it, you know, it brings up everything. It also puts boundaries on behavior which I needed because I, had, I was a pretty uh, heedless and a hedonistic kind of person as a lay person. And I remember, you know, suffering here at Amravati about wanting Amravati to be something that I didn't think it was. Not wanting it to be the way it is. And yet because of this, this confidence in this awareness, I could see this as, you know, wanting something to be something it's not or not wanting it to be the way it is. This is bhavadana vipavadana. With the monks and nuns, wanting the monks and the nuns to, to be a certain way and not wanting them to be another way. That's me, isn't it? Wanting people to be what I think, what I would like them to be, or not wanting them to be the way they are. So this is, you know, putting into this, this perspective of bhavadana vipavadana. So it's like this, you know, you can see it, wanting Amarvati to be a certain way is like this. Now when I'm doing this, I'm, I'm now aware, and I have a feeling of, Maybe being discontented with Amravati as it is, as I think it is. It's like this, this feeling of, and I make it quite conscious. I want Amravati to, to be a certain way. So I quite intentionally even think the thought, you know, so that it's consciously received. And then I begin to see that by pursuing that, by wanting to, wanting it to be something else, I suffer. 
I create suffering for myself. So I'm not helping me nor am any of you here at Amravati by doing that. Or apply that to yourself, wanting yourself to, to not be the way you are at this moment. I don't want to be, I don't want to feel like this. I want to be somebody better than what I feel right now. This is bhavadana vipavadana. No, we do. We, can't, we, we suffer a lot from guilt because we can't be an ideal. You'll never be the, the ideal bhikkhu or siladhara or anagarika or anything like that. You know, you're never going to be the, the perfect image. You can create an image of perfection, but you can never be perfect through the images you create, no matter how perfect they might be or how beautiful they might be. Because you're not an image. Your true nature is not born or created or formed or conditioned. So your, your refuge is in the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And that's here and now, awaken here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, that's the Dhamma. So even this word Dhamma becomes, you know, it's very significant to me now and I take refuge in the Dhamma in reality. Taking refuge in the real, not in the false. There is the unborn. This is the unborn, here and now. I can't imagine it, still can up to 42 years. There's no image of it, but I know it. There's a knowing. Uh, an insight knowledge that comes through this kind of reflection that I can't claim as some kind of personal attainment. If I start saying I'm wise or something, then you know I've lost it. But it's, it's, not, it's not personal. So what you, through this recognition, the reality of the unborn, Wisdom operates from there. That's what the Buddha recognized when in his enlightenment, what we call enlightenment. When he was the ascetic Gotama and trying hard to get all the samadhi and everything, you know, he, he, he was successful at it, but there was still something, it was still dukkha still something unsatisfactory about it. Even the highest jhanas or the most uh, uh, beatific states of mind are not sustainable, not, they ha, you know, they, they arise and they cease. Their nature is dukkha. So, so the reality is our only refuge in the real or the Dhamma. So the Dhamma now means to me the real, it's reality. And so Dhamma includes the conditions because at this moment all the conditions, whether they're good or bad, because they, they have arisen, then they belong here. Whether you're feeling good or bad, happy or sad, uh, whatever, it's all right, nothing. They're not trying to tell you how you should feel, but 
encouraging you to awaken to feeling, to the reality, to recognize or realize this is the unborn. Then you can see the born in perspective. Like seeing things in, you know, on visual consciousness, seeing in perspective things. When you don't see in perspective, then you're always operating from, from some, uh, some position you're taking, some resentment, some, some view or opinion. And you're caught in a thinking process. Now, examining the thinking process, observing, thinking, it's, it's a habit of the mind, isn't it? We, we're not born thinking. We acquire this ability. And so we think and then we, and one thought goes on to the next. And that's why we call conceptual proliferation. One thing goes on to the next. Now being aware of thinking, what is it? I can be aware of thinking. So when, you know, when, when I get lost in thought, say conceptual proliferation, then there's a point where I suddenly realize I'm aware of that, aware of, of the thinking process, aware of how I create myself as a personality, my identities with my uh, memories. Like this evening we saw the the slideshow on my trip to uh, Saba. That's all memory. That's not a permanent person. Was Bob Jackman of 1964 the same person as Ajahn Sumedho in 19, in 2008? You know, that's, I can remember Sampona. And then I revived memories because I'd forgotten a lot of places and that about Saba that I, you know, had forgotten the names of certain islands and whatnot that I had to recall. Now that's Sanya Sankara, and then it, you know, and it feels one has certain feelings or emotions aroused happiness, sadness, nostalgia, uh, regret. Various emotions arise according to the memories that, that come and go. But during all this time that there can be, uh, you know, a personality operating, there's this ever-present possibility of awareness. Awareness is, is shining the floodlight on the conditioned realm, seeing where we see in perspective where we can see things as they really are. And then anatta, is that, is that a real person? Ajahn Sumato or Bob Jackman, was that, is that a real person? Or is that only sanya, sankara? It arises and ceases. Now when there's no self then, but there's still consciousness, so we have vijnana, and that's, you know, vijnana is what we're using for reflection because we don't create vijnana out of ignorance. We don't, you know, we're born with it. When, when we're born as a, 
as a baby, we operate from, you know, as a separate entity and the umbilical cord is cut and we're operating as a separate entity, conscious entity. So consciousness is, it's not created, I don't create it out of my ignorance, out of Sakya Ditti, Silabhata Bharamasa Vichikeja. It's Dhamma, it's reality. Consciousness is reality. So we're using consciousness now for investigation, not for identity. Not for defining or trying to find consciousness as some object, we're recognizing it. It's like space in this room, it's here all around us, but we may not be aware of it. You know, if I'm in a mood, an angry mood, and I'm, I'm angry about something, and then I'm sitting here and I'm, and I'm thinking about all the, the, the associated things, emotions that arise with negativity. And I, and there's no space in it. I just go on, you know. I forget all kinds of things. Forget the time I get so involved, so enraged, just by winding myself up with thinking. Or trying to stop thinking. I feel guilty. I shouldn't be angry. Monk 42 Vasas should be beyond anger. And uh, so I'm trying to stop anger and to spread loving kindness. But it's still, even loving kindness is coming from Sakya Ditti. Me trying to be kind, me trying to be a good monk, me trying to, uh, you know, be a good example, me trying to get enlightened. It's all about me trying to get something and then feeling defeated and despairing when I don't get what I want. Because no matter how hard I try on the ego level to achieve enlightenment, it does, it's impossible. The ego is never going to be enlightened. It's not its nature, it's a condition, it's dukkha, it's anatta. It's, that's why, you know, as the first feather, fetter, Sakya Ditti, it's getting to know Sakya Ditti. It's not that I don't have Sakya Ditti anymore, and I know it, there's a difference between attaching to it and being blinded by Sakya Ditti and knowing Sakya Ditti. So that's where this awareness, you, know, you, can't, you can't know Sakya Ditti through more Sakya Ditti. You know, when I start trying to figure out why am I like this? Who's to blame for my fears and problems and emotional limitations? Is it my mother? Is it my father? Is it the American society? Is it the teachers I've had? Is it uh, it's George Bush? Who's to blame? And then, uh, you know, we go around in circles. Is it, who's to blame for my, uh, you know, for me feeling like this? Or being aware of that is like this. It's just a, it's like a quantum leap from being attached and caught into the vortex of samsara to releasing yourself from it. 
It still can swirl about for a while, but you're aware of it. You're seeing it as an object rather than being overwhelmed and lost into this vortex of conditioning. So if you keep pursuing this, you know, then you, you, you have the insight, I guarantee it. But if you're going to operate from Sakya Ditti all the time, you know, you're not going to get it. If you can't, if you're not willing to trust in your own awareness of the self-view. Sakya Ditti Sila Bhattabharamasa. And Sila Bhattabharamasa is the second fetter, and that, that is... It, you know, I don't like the translation in the scripture because it doesn't work for me, but it, but saying it's conventional conditioning, cultural conditioning, attachment to conventions. And then, you know, this is where I begin to realize how, you know, the, the cultural conditioning I have affects how I see the world. The American white middle-class Protestant uh, cultural conditioning is, uh, is it's, you know, you, you, you get it in a, from your parents, from your social background, because you're born into this family, into this society, and, it, and you get what they offer, what they, what they think, what they feel. And it's not always you know, consciously given. It's just picked up through, through growing up with your parents, with your family, society. So this is where the, this, this emptiness, this awareness, it's empty. It's not cultural. It's not, it's not even Buddhist. Buddhism is a convention. It's, it's reality. This, this is re the real. This is the unborn. Then, the, then there's, I can be aware of uh, biases, cultural biases, assumptions I make just from, you know, just from being brought up in a liberal, white liberal family, Christian family in America. So uh, this this awareness is not American. It's not liberal or white or Protestant or anything. It's universal. So the only way we can free ourselves from the limitation of cultural conditioning is through awareness of it. Not trying to get rid of it, but recognize it. Some of it is good, some of it isn't. But, it, you know, so it's not that all conditions are impermanent, therefore they're all bad. Conditions can be good and bad, and right and wrong, true and false. But all conditions are impermanent. All conditions are anicca dukkha And so this is the awareness of the... See the simplicity of this. From the unconditioned, you, there's the knowing of the condition. That's whole, that's complete. You've finished the task then. You've learned what you needed to learn in this human incarnation. If you can just 
learn this, recognize it, then your life has been fulfilled, completed. Don't have to be reborn again to go through it. <laughs> so then on the Owada Patimoka, says, patient forbearance is the foremost self-discipline. Well, this takes patience, forbearance, and, and willingness to put up with everything, no matter what, to learn from it. So you learn from despair and from failure and from humiliation and from deprivation, but you don't seek any of that. It just, but you learn from everything that happens. Nibbana is paramount. Nibbana is a reality. Nibbana, this is Nibbana, it's here and now. One who harms others is no renunciate. So that's, uh, you know, so this is going back to action and living in society. We don't harm each other. You know, our, our intention is not to exploit, cheat, lie, uh, humiliate, insult each other. So then in this, uh, not a renunciate, Samana, these are words don't, Samana is all right, renunciation doesn't, I don't know about that, but it's the best they can do maybe. Refraining from all evil, performing the skillful and good, purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So this is, this is a simple, this is, this is very simple, isn't it? It's, it's almost like, oh, I've heard that how many times? Do good, refrain from doing evil, don't tell me again. And then, but this is this is a, this is given to 1,250 arahants. They know this already. You know, they, the Buddha wasn't reciting something new to them. But this comes from a different level. It's not just intellectual. It's not about me trying not to be evil and me trying to be good and skillful, and me trying to purify my mind. When I'm trying to get rid of all my evil intentions and, and become a skillful and good person and purify my mind, I've never succeeded from, from me trying to do that. I've never been good enough. And then when, when evil thoughts or things arise, then I feel guilty. Because that's how my personality works. I feel guilty about having bad thoughts. I feel, uh, I would, you know, I want to be, my, my happiness as a person depends on being accepted and liked and praised and appreciated and loved. I want people to love and respect me and I want people to appreciate who I am. And that makes me feel good as a person. My personality feels safe. I feel safe as a person when everybody's smiling, saying, oh, just Mato, we think you're the greatest teacher of all time. I feel it. But then somebody says, I think you're a bloody phony. And then, oh, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> get him out of here. <laughs> but personality is like that, isn't it? It's, my personality depends for happiness to be 
appreciated, accepted, admired, respected, and so forth. And when I'm not, then I feel very insecure, unhappy, despairing, suicidal, miserable. That's how my personality works. I can't trust that. So waking up to the personality was the only answer out of that, out of that situation. Because I couldn't make my personality into where it was only good and I could feel safe as a person even when people were criticizing and abusing me. I can't as a person do that. But through awareness it's possible to be aware of being insulted, looked down on, despised. So then you test this out which is, which is you know, which is a refuge in me trying to to control things so I feel safe and secure or letting go of that, of the condition to allow life to flow through me to be with the flow of conscious reality no matter what it brings praise or blame, happiness, suffering success, failure and then the last stanza not to disparage, not to harm, restraint in f line with the code of training, moderation in food, dwelling secluded, committed to the heightened mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So, disparagement is is a critical faculty, isn't it? So we to disparage something, we have to start. Saying, I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't. I don't. You know, you're always seeing what you don't like about yourself or somebody else or the society. Now I was brought up with in order I was brought up in a society where you you're supposed to disparage things. You see what's wrong. So you you know, you especially like in my my background, my social background. What's right and what's wrong, how things should be. And then feeling very indignant and uh, upset when things aren't what they should be about hypocrisy, indignant about the hypocriticalness uh, of the society I'm in. Uh, the um, disparage um, uh, the United States, uh, disparage the Christianity, disparage whatever, I'm very good at it. Not to harm, that's, uh, so that, that I really developed in Thailand, learning to, to live with, with, you know, we're talking about it this afternoon, living in the Thai monastery with only ants, termites, uh, snakes and mosquitoes. Not to harm, learning to patiently forbear the annoying, the irritating, the unwanted. Not to harm. You know, so I would feel like harming, you know, I still want to kill mosquitoes and things like this, but I didn't do it because of the determination not to harm anything intentionally. Restraint in line with the code of training, learning to live within the limitations of the training rules. So you can observe 
they give boundary to action and speech that help us to see. You know, we don't feel like living within the boundaries of sometimes, but we can observe that. And then in the end of the day, you feel grateful because I think of all the things over 42 years I have not done that I would have done if I hadn't been a monk. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and moderation in food, that's good. We get such good food here. We do, and then the dwelling secluded. That doesn't mean, you know, then we think, I can't live here at Amravati because I need a separate kuti where I can live secluded. That's still Sakya Ditti, isn't it? I can't live here because I need a special place for me is Sakya Ditti. So we can be aware of that. So we, with the dwelling that is provided, the being grateful for that, that's a better mental state than always dwelling on the fact that you don't Maybe the, the place you are living in isn't what you want. Commit commitment to the heightened mind. Adijitejayogo. This is commitment to this awareness. It's not, it's a heightened mind. It, this is a heightened awareness. It includes everything. Like one can be aware of an object, you know, like this glass, but to be aware like this. It includes this glass. I'm not, I don't have to get rid of the glass, but my focus isn't on the glass anymore. It's, it's this natural state of uh, open attentiveness. So this is, uh, this is the un, unborn. When I just focus on the glass and I get into, you know, is this glass too small or too big or half full or half empty or I'm going to make a endless complication around just this simplicity of this glass, which is all right sometimes. And, you know, when it's time to look at some object, you know what you're doing, but you're not just lost in the limited and bound into the conditioned realm with no other option, no other reality, other than your Sakya Ditti, your conditioning. And then Wichikicha, the third Fetter is uh, always comes from thinking. So give up thinking. Don't believe anything you think. But be aware of thinking. So in the, this awareness then, thinking then is seen as an object. So then thinking, one can use thought, but no, no longer is one blinded by what the thoughts that one has. Otherwise, when you don't know this, you're always blinded by your thoughts. You believe them. You believe your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your views and opinions. Your, your, this is avicca, ignorance. Thoroughly committed to my delusions. But I don't believe, you know, I can uh, you know, what, thinking is not something to despise, but something to use properly. 
it's for it's it, it's an asset to use, but it also can be this binding ourselves to the thinking process. We're stuck there in the vortex of of the samsara. We just get whirled around with thoughts, reason and logic, views and opinions, loves and hates, likes and dislikes. So then, what is it that's aware of thinking? So then I, you know, I've, I've shared all my knowledge with you over the years uh, that I've gained through this practice. And so, pointing to this sound of silence, when I, when I'm not, a, when there's non-attachment, then I notice this, what I call sound of silence. I'm not creating it. I'm not, uh, it's not mine, it's not something that I, you know, that I create and that I can claim as some personal object. It's real. It's like this. And then the thinking, the sakyaditi ceases immediately. So I think, I don't like this and I don't agree with that. Sound of silence. The thought process ceases in that silence. Then there's still maybe a resonating vibration of emotion. Like like if you're in a state of, uh, you know, aversion to something. I don't like this. And you stop the thinking process. But there can still be a remaining energy that you can, and this is forbear with that. Be patient, accepting of that remaining energy. Emotional energy that's, that's present. And, it, and you see it changing, that it ceases. So this is a, the cessation of suffering, the end of suffering. So the Buddha emphasizing, he says, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Now I've heard that over and over again since I've become a Buddhist monk. But now it really means, is that simple, suffering and the end of suffering? Well, what about, what happens when you die and the ultimate nature of everything and God and, and you know, we want, to un- we want answers to all the big questions we can ask from the thinking mind. And then we think of the conceit of being human. You know, when you, you know, I'm just looking out at the night sky sometimes on a clear night. You look out into the, in all these stars, galaxies, and on and on. It's it's mind-blowing. And then modern science, astronomy, and so forth have explored the, the space and the heavens. And it goes on and on ad infinitum. We can't, we can't possibly know all about that. And yet we want to make proclamations about whether God exists or not. I think, what a conceit to go around saying there's no God. Like a termite, and that or there's this, this this cartoon I have in my kitchen of these two fleas, what, you know, uh, philosophical fleas, 
and they're obviously walking on a dog, you know, because it, you can't see the, I mean, you see the, there's this, they're walking on something with hair sticking out of it. And these two fleas are contemplating the nature of things, and he says, you know, sometimes I can no longer believe in the reality of dog. And that's what we're like. <laughs> I mean, we're like fleas on the dog that get caught in our thinking process. So we say, there is a God or there isn't a God. How should, you know, this is, a, this is an arrogant statement. There is Dhamma, there's a reality of now. This is what we can know directly. There is the unborn, this is a fact. And from this unborn, we can observe the nature of the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. And that's all the, the physical body, the sense realm that we're experiencing, the emotional habits, the memories that we experience in the, in the moments, in the present moments of our life. And we learn from that. We, we, we see the Dhamma, we know Dhamma rather than knowing all about what this great scientist said about the nature of reality or the limits of the universe or whether God exists or doesn't. And then the Buddha says there is suffering. I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Well, the end of suffering is trusting in this awareness. This you know. that. If I don't create suffering out of ignorance, I still feel things. But there's also insight to know not to create aversion, not to get lost in not wanting, or wanting something I don't have or not wanting what I have. This is a sense realm we've got to bear with, forbear with the sensory karma of having been born as a human individual. So, I mean, till death of this body, we've got to experience its conditioning, its aging process, its weaknesses, its failing vision, its, uh, its um, arthritic joints, its <laughs> flabby body, its, <laughs> its the diminishing of energy. Uh, you know, and it, it's limitation, but but this is not suffering. This is just the way it is. The, the nature of things, the conditions are like this: a f human birth, and then then the aging process, sickness and death. This is the this is the way it is on the, on that level. It's suffering when I don't want it to be like this. When I don't want to be old when I don't want to have illnesses or arthritic joints or, or whatever. When I want to be young again, which I don't. <laughs> but if I did, that would be suffering. Because knowing this, then you, then you can learn from the aging process till it's time for the body to 
to die. But my refuge isn't in the body, it's in the deathless. There is the unborn, the deathless. And so this is recognizing, knowing reality, knowing the real. It's like not knowing anything though, because you can't describe it. It's beyond the thinking process, but it's realizable, recognizable. So in this retreat, uh, uh, just offer this for uh, as an encouragement to kind of hoping to encourage you. My main point is encouraging. I'm not trying to tell you or intimidate you, but encourage. Because we, we do, we get caught in self-doubt and, and we, we bind ourselves so much to, to feeling and emotion and, and views and opinions. And it's hard to get out of that unless we get encouragement to have that kind of, we can do it, this is it, you know, it's not, you know, if I say you have to, you're not a good meditator, you've got to get this first and then you've got to go off to a nice secluded place and then you've got to get the jhanas and then you've got to develop the insight and you go along with that. Well, I'm, I'm in a position of authority so you, you might believe me. And then you say, Ajahn Tomato said, I am not ready for Vipassana yet because I'm too, I'm too conceited and I've got to get rid of my self-importance and my uh, anger. I've got to get rid of my anger. But what I'm encouraging you to do is, it, no matter how horrible you are in the present, be aware, it's like this. Feeling horrible is like this. Welcoming it. Say, welcome horribleness. <laughs> and open your arms wide. <laughs> and it'll, you know, let it be what it is. You know, it's up to you to make it, change it, or judge it. Just accept it, recognize it, and it'll, it goes its way. And that patient forbearance is allowing things to be what they are. Even when, you know, we don't like them or don't want them to be this way, we allow that to be what it is. And so on this retreat, you know, the attitude of receiving, acknowledging, letting it be what it is. Because my refuge is in the unborn, not in trying to manipulate the born, the created. So I offer this for your reflection.